0: Hello and welcome to Rewind Design, a Cottage Country podcast. You have landed in season two of the podcast, which is very exciting because I have an amazing episode today. But if you're interested, season one was also a wonderful listen, I do have to say. Season one focused on interviewing Georgian Bay and Muskoka cottagers specifically about their cottage properties. So we talked a lot about how their cottage property has changed over time, how they ended up purchasing their cottage, how long they've had it for, how their cottage design has morphed and changed and weaved through time. Some of these stories, I'll have you know, are pretty wild. There's some things going on in Georgian Bay that you might be shocked about. I don't want to give anything away because I'd love for you to go back and listen to some episodes, but I've been shocked in my interview processes. I'll just I'll leave it there. So, I'd go back and listen to season 1 if you're interested in the history of the area and listening to really beautiful stories of how much Cottagers love 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 Georgian Bay and, and Muskoka. So, if this is your first episode you're listening to in season 2, welcome. Thank you so much for listening. Season 2 is a really special season for me because it all started when I was working on season one and I was noticing while I was boating all all around cottage country interviewing cottagers, I was really noticing the impact that cottaging and modern cottaging perhaps is having on our environment. Our beautiful ecological environment here is so special, especially the shorelines of Georgian Bay. And I started to wonder if there was maybe some building practices that we were using in our modern world that maybe we could challenge and talk about and see if there's better ways to build in terms of environmental sustainability. But as the season progressed, we started talking more and more about sustainability with so many guests on the show. And it's become quite an interesting debatable topic because sustainability can mean so many different things to so many different people. And there's so many different kinds of sustainability. So we're talking environmental sustainability, but also energy sustainability and economic sustainability and social sustainability. And all of these things are so important when we're talking about the overarching idea of sustainability. So season two is focusing on these topics. I'm trying to speak to as many people in the building industry as possible. So that includes architects, other interior designers, landscapers, engineers, all of the above. So it's been a super exciting experience and I've got lots of episodes piled up to share in the next few months. So please follow along and stay tuned. So in this week's episode, we have Amanda Kellett from Tatham Engineering, and I'm so excited to share this episode with you. This is our first episode with an engineer, let's say, and Amanda's role at Tatham Engineering is climate resilience and sustainability manager. So She really focuses on the coastal protection of the shorelines, which we will get into in the episode. We speak specifically about a project called Sunset Point Eco Shoreline, and that is in Collingwood. And this is, I wanna say an innovative technique in protecting the shoreline naturally, but it's actually, as Amanda says, not actually that innovative because it's so simple, but so effective. So if you listen along to this episode, we're gonna talk through the process of naturalization and keeping this shoreline natural and protecting from erosion in a way that hasn't been done before along the coast of Georgian Bay. Otherwise, it's a very exciting interview with Amanda I've loved chatting with her. It's a very insightful and educational interview. So let's get right into it. Thanks, Amanda. Thank you so much, Amanda, for being on the show today. I'm really excited to have you. It's been a long time coming. (laughs) So we're going to get started with just some general questions for you today. So I really wanted to get to know... How you got into this industry? She works for Tatham Engineering and it is based in, I would say, like Northern Central Ontario, like Barrie, Collingwood, Muskoka areas where you do most of the work. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Okay. So I just want to get a little bit more information about where you're from, how long you've been maybe working in the engineering industry, maybe where you went to school, all of these things. Yeah,
1: for sure. Well, thanks for having me. So I grew up in Oshawa, but I now live in Barrie and I've been in central Ontario for almost 20 years. I've been working in the engineering industry for a little over 20 years. And uh, when I started my career, I was in Toronto working for the city of Toronto. And then I moved a couple years later to, I, we found this perfect little cottage on the Green River in Washago, and it was a great first home to buy affordable at the time, certainly by today's standards. And so that's what brought me kind of north of the city. Yeah. And in terms of my educational background, my degree is in water resources engineering, and I studied at the University of Guelph. So that deals with surface water, things like managing stormwater and assessing floodplains. So yeah, that's what I've largely been involved with, but after working for about 10 years in that field, and in large part because of the shoreline areas that we serve at Tatham, uh, I became interested in coastal engineering. So I did some graduate courses in coastal engineering and worked with a professor at Queen's University to help to develop that expertise. And just to give an idea of what coastal engineering involves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's yeah cuz it's, yeah. it's yeah maybe not the most straightforward discipline so not as common as some of the other engineering disciplines but mm-hmm. so it involves assessing waves and other shoreline processes to figure out things like where development you know might be appropriate or where it might be at risk of damage from shoreline hazards like flooding erosion and ice, and and then also in in some cases designing protection measures so that
0: development can be safe from mm-hmm. those hazards. So that's a really good explanation because I think most people might not understand if you say, oh, I'm a coastal engineer, what does that entail? So I think that was a really great summary. And so like let's say you're building a dock or a boathouse or something right on that shoreline what are the main things that you consider when you're when you're initially doing that from your perspective
1: yeah so we are concerned about you know where that structure might be at risk from flooding erosion Mm -hmm. And ice. And those are all things that just naturally occur along the water. And if you don't have any, you know, human activity, it's fine. Like that's they're Mm -hmm. going to function that way. It's just when when we get involved and we start to interact with the shoreline, that's where the challenges arise. So (laughs) so yeah, so it's we we do assessments to look at, okay, if it's a permanent dock, how do we make sure that it's not going to be damaged? What kind of protection measures might you need for a boathouse? Yeah, same kind of sets of considerations, like Mm -hmm. where should it be situated so it's, you know, at least risk or best protected from shoreline hazards? You know, how high would you want it to be set so that it's not going to be flooded? Going to see, you know, hopefully less ice damage and then our information we also feeds into the, the structural engineering
0: and the other uh, elements of, of the design. Gotcha. And is this something that you would say you would work with if it's a new building that you'd work with the architect on this when they're, you know, before they're submitting for permit or how would that process Definitely. work? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So if it's a new build, yeah, we typically get, we might get a set of proposed plans from an architect or you know if it's a site development get a proposed site plan from a planner but when we get hired and we're brought in to satisfy you know the municipality or conservation authority or whoever it is that's a- asking for this study, we provide that advice on, okay, where should you locate your house? Or, you know, what do you need to do to protect this Mm boathouse? So, yeah, and it's harder when sometimes we get involved later on in the process and it becomes more, you know, it's more difficult and costly to have to redesign rather than considering it from the start. Yeah.
0: And then, so like, let's say someone designs a boathouse, which I guess isn't typical everywhere boathouses, I feel like are such a Muskoka specific thing. But let's just say a dock, for example, if someone's designing a dock that maybe you think is really not a good idea, and maybe it's located right in an area that has terrible waves and you're really worried about it, what are kind of some things that you would suggest changing? Is it, is it, would you ever just say maybe don't put it there? Like, would you suggest a different location or is there any other like, I again I'm not very familiar necessarily with specific dock engineering so I I don't even know what else you would suggest like whether it's fixed or floating or maybe you can run me through that Sure yeah I think like when you look at
1: the hierarchy of of how you know it's best to deal with natural hazards the best thing to do is avoid it entirely and yeah. so <laughs> That's always the first advice is if you can avoid it, avoid it. Because if you are trying to protect against that, that's always higher risk and higher cost. So sometimes you can't avoid it, but that's that's the first line of defense. And then after that, when you're looking at design mitigations yeah it's certainly like if you can install a cantilever structure something that you can take out seasonally if it's mm-hmm. floating, because yeah you don't have to deal with um, ice breakup tends to be the worst of conditions for docks and for boat houses. so that like m- much more so than than weave action is what does damage to those structures mm-hmm. on the whole so yeah so it's there's this, the structure type there's the materials you can also in more extreme cases install things that are offshore of the structure like a breakwater mm-hmm. that helps to break up ice before it reaches the dock i know bubblers are popular in some locations to try to prevent ice formation as well so there mm-hmm. are a lot of approaches but again yeah as much as you can avoid that hazard it's Better in all in all cases.
0: It's so funny because I'm from the Georgian Bay side of things. I didn't spend that much time in Muskoka before I was really working in the design industry. And you know where I'm from in Perry Sound, most people can't access their cottages in the winter because they're all on islands. So all all of our docks, you know, they're all floating. We pull the ramps up. You know, most of them are cantilevered, and then we have. Like a floating dock that we like let float out, <laughs> and yeah. that's just pretty typical from wh- where I'm from. But then when I started working in Muskoka, I remember I went to this site in the winter, and I had no idea what a bubbler was because I'd never yeah. seen one because we just don't have boathouses <laughs> where we are, and it was just such a foreign concept to me and shocked me. But then it makes total sense because the way that the structure is. I can see how it could be very damaged by ice formations because it's, it can't, it has no give, it has no movement. So I can totally understand why that, you know, maybe isn't the best option all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it's crazy. <laughs> and I was going to ask yeah. you, so you're, you're based in Barry, but where would you say most of your projects are like for your, for coastal development? Yeah,
1: so we uh, like as a company we service yeah central Ontario sort of like you described that's that's our core area and so in terms of the shoreline areas that covers Lake Simcoe Georgian Bay some parts of Lake Huron and the Muskoka Lakes are kind of our core areas and we we sometimes venture a little further
0: afield from that but yeah I'd say that that covers the vast majority of our projects. And then just outside of this one specific department, can you just briefly describe what the other departments are just as an overarching idea of Tatham? Sure. Yeah. So Tatham
1: Engineering, we're a civil engineering consulting firm, and we've been around for 34 years and have five offices across central Ontario. So our uh, clients range from say you know private homeowners to larger scale land developers and we also work on the public side for small and large municipalities so that kind of covers our you know their client base and where we're located and in terms of the services that we offer we have yeah, water resources engineering, which is part of the work that I do in coastal engineering, land development, municipal engineering, structural, water and wastewater, transportation, mechanical and electrical, and hydrogeology as well. Yeah, that's like, oh,
0: so I think it there's like so many it's, parts of the Engineering? Long list. Yeah. Yeah,
1: for sure. Yeah. And that's sort of like, those are kind of the core disciplines that you need when you're doing, you know, a land development project or a municipal infrastructure project. So mm-hmm. we have a, a lot of projects involve all of those mm-hmm. departments and some are, you know, some can be a smaller number of that. But yeah, there's a lot of collaboration
0: between those groups. Okay, so that, that's awesome. So like, how many people do you think work for the company in, in total? I'm just trying to wrap my head around the scale of the company.
1: Yeah, like we'd be considered a medium-sized consulting firm in Canada. And so we have uh, about 175 staff currently across our five offices. Yeah, so and that includes engineers, geoscientists, technologists,
0: technicians, and then we have a range of support staff that help us do the work we do. Nice. No, that's awesome. Yeah. I mean, every project needs engineering in some capacity. So (laughs) I feel like it's a very needed industry and really, really important because again, you know, designers and architects can say all they want about wanting to build something. But at the end of the day, sometimes it just doesn't work. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's
1: yeah, I feel like
0: Unfortunately, we often have
1: to be the bearers of bad news on, mm-hmm. on in terms of what's feasible and what isn't. But, you know, it's a necessary part of doing a project and, and better to find that
0: out during design than during construction. So it's for sure. Yeah, yes. That's part of the process. <laughs> yeah. I feel like I try to get everybody involved from the beginning just to discuss any issues that could potentially occur, like right from the beginning. And I think that's just. Like you said, so important. If you're if you're going to suggest at the end of the day, no, you shouldn't put this structure where you're designing it. It's like, oh, well, now we've just wasted all of our design hours designing this for this specific location. <laughs> it's not going to work. So. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And, and it can be heartbreaking for clients too. If they, you know, yeah, they've gone down this path and they have their heart set on a, a given outcome and, and, and they've seen all the renderings, out. you
0: know, and all the yeah, floor plans yeah. and everything, like all the pretty things. And then, you know, if it's not going to work, that, that's terrible. <laughs> for sure. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you just a bit, a bit, bit about sustainability because this is kind of the whole reason I'm doing the season two of this podcast is I'm talking to so many people in the design build industry about their perspectives on sustainable design. And everyone has a little bit of a different perspective coming from different fields. And also it's such a broad term that it's really hard to define like, what does it even mean? But I just wanted to get your perspective on what Tatham is doing to be more sustainable, maybe like specifically in their coastal design. And to me, that means like, how are you considering the environment when you're designing and, you know, the types of materials that you're using?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, like you say, sustainability, it's a broad term and means different things and, you know, for different projects and different contexts. But in terms of Shoreline projects specifically, to me, it means what we have talked about, prioritizing uh, avoiding disturbance where it's possible. And then when it's not possible to avoid that, aiming to use natural materials and approaches, again, wherever possible. So there are high-risk settings where you you need a, a hardened shoreline to provide the right protection, usually where you already have development of some kind but I think even when yeah when you can't go the whole way to incorporating a more nature-based solution is the you know the terminology that we would use you can still incorporate elements of to hardened solutions so
0: that's kind of a, the high level could you maybe give an example like, of what you mean by that
1: yeah so like when we talk about sort of traditional, Shoreline protection. It tends to be things like concrete walls, mm-hmm. sheet pile walls, and then stone structures, stone revetments. Those are sort of the more typical approaches, and they do, you know, they they work well to stop, you know, shoreline erosion and to, you know, provide negative side effects for, you know, the the natural shoreline mm-hmm. processes whereas like the things we would call nature based solutions are more are more based in you know vegetation natural materials like bioengineering is another word for it where mm-hmm. you're using woody debris and other features like that it, rather than the hardened stone concrete um, mm-hmm. steel so those are like the the two kind of general categories of of options when it comes to shoreline protection, and the nature based solutions are certainly still
0: gaining acceptance as, as yeah. an alternative. Because mm-hmm. I think this is something that people, I mean, you see it all the time: retaining walls holding holding any sort of like you said erosion, but it is such a harsh feature on such an important part of the ecosystem, which I find it's actually just so funny because I was just interviewing the Georgian Bay biosphere talking about kind of best practices when building from their perspective. Obviously, again, everyone's coming at it from a a different viewpoint. So, you know, I appreciate everyone's viewpoint, but they're saying that the shoreline specifically is kind of the most important part of the ecosystem because animals at every single point in at least, sorry, let me rephrase that. An animal in one point of its life will have to be on the shoreline. So again, if it's a frog, you know, they're laying their eggs on the shoreline and same with fish spawning and other animals are using this this part of the environment a lot more, like the connection between the land and the water, turtle eggs, these types of things. So I think from their perspective, it's they would prefer to see nothing being put there and like natural erosion. So f- I'm wondering, yeah. you know, how is there a middle ground for this that allows for, you know, the the owner of the property for them to to not see as much erosion with these natural, what are they called? You said like natural
1: yeah, nature-based solutions. Nature-based solutions. The, yeah.
0: The terminology, <laughs> the property, yeah. You know, versus doing this really harsh concrete or stone-based solution because again, that works really well for its purpose, but environmentally it might just not be the best option for like the ecosystem. I know that's a tough this is a tough
1: topic, but <laughs> Yeah, no, not at all. And it's actually it's something that I've been thinking about a lot in recent years. Mm. In, in part I think sort of seeing the aggregate effect of like all the work that you do, like when you see it over time, all of the shoreline protection and, you know, it it has been necessary in part, We had really high water levels on the Great Lakes and Mm -hmm. Georgian Bay, Lake Huron in particular. And fluctuating levels a lot. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. So can be challenging conditions. And so, yeah, we did see a lot of shoreline properties that had flooding, that had erosion. In many cases, structures that were really at risk of you know, serious damage if there wasn't something done to protect the shoreline. So, you know, there has been a need for it. However, if you look at, you know, a stretch of shoreline and you see this, you know, incremental hardening and, you know, denaturalization, it does, you know, I think when you step back and look at it holistically, you do start to worry about the impacts of that. And so, yeah, something I've I've been thinking about a lot and trying then to incorporate these nature-based solutions where we can. And there is there's a category of these practices that are, they call it like a gray green sort of blend where you take like the gray infrastructure being the hardened traditional and the green infrastructure being the the softer nature-based. So for example, if you had a stone structure, we would call it a revetment, sort of lays against the shoreline and is meant to protect against erosion. So that could that's something that could be vegetated, and mm-hmm. it's not something I do have a pilot project coming. Ooh, um, exciting! That <laughs> install that. Yeah. So with it's with the Nottawasaga Island Lighthouse Protection Committee. Okay. Um, and so they are. It's it's an island with a lighthouse that's not too far off the Collingwood shoreline. And the committee wants to do restoration work on the lighthouse, and so they'll need improved boat access to be Mm -hmm. able to do that construction. And so as part of that and part of the permitting for that, we designed a structure and then incorporated a, we're calling it a vegetative revetment. So it's a stone structure, but with the addition of some specific, you know, shoreline appropriate vegetation so that it can then... You know, have sort of habitat enhancements, provide shade, and you know be much better for for fish and other aquatic animals than mm-hmm. standard stone structure. so i'm I'm' excited to see that in practice. And I do think it's something that can be applied a lot more broadly. and and like stone revetments are extremely common along a lot of the shorelines that we work on. So it's something that can be done. After the fact of, you know, if you have an existing structure, you can also, you know, it's possible to go in and add plantings. And, you know, in that way, you take what is kind of a less than
0: natural hardened shoreline and you can naturalize it. Mm -hmm. And can you just explain for anyone listening what a revetment is?
1: Yeah, so it's, it's really just... A layer of stone that's sort of placed against the existing shoreline slope so it's Mm -hmm. flatter than you know if you picture like a stacked armor stone wall Mm -hmm. it's sort of like that but flattened out and with rounded usually rounded granite or limestone boulders Mm -hmm. so it it protects like it causes waves to break up and it dissipates the energy. So it protects against erosion in that way, but it is still, it's not, you know, it's not a natural shoreline.
0: Yeah. And I think, I mean, most people will understand what that is because I think that is quite a common way to do it around here. I don't know if it has to do with cost or anything, because maybe it's a better option. I'm not sure.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think environmentally it is, it's a little nicer than a vertical wall because it does it breaks up like it breaks up the wave energy in place rather than like the other downside of hardened shore walls is that they tend to just send the wave energy and also just down to the neighboring property Um, okay
0: and And, they do have yeah negative effects for and depending on where you know like if you're in a cove or you're on a point i guess it's so different right like if you're in a cove or something on one side of it and the wave bounces off your wall, it, it could just like be redirected right to your neighbor. <laughs>
1: yes. So you do have to be cautious about that when you're designing those structures. But yeah, the revetments are are considered better in that regard in terms of, yeah, not
0: having off site impacts right. in the same way that walls do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you can even tell just like the grade of the slope is much less. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's so similar, yeah, Yeah. You can kind of, when you, if you ever watch waves
1: breaking against. Those two types of structures is a very clear difference in how Mm -hmm. they operate. So you can see, like, the wave energy just kind of gets eaten up by the revetment structure because it has voids, and the waves go in and dissipate and come back out. But yeah, the wall you see, you can see an actual like reflection of Mm -hmm. waves being
0: redirected. And I find it specifically. Oh my gosh, I can't speak today. (laughs) Specifically in Cottage Country, when we're surrounded by so much nature, it is pretty jarring sometimes to see that vertical wall coming from the water because we're so used to just having that really gentle grade typically into the water unless you're on some sort of rock face or something where it's like <laughs> and not like naturally on your property
1: yes <laughs> but- yeah and in those cases, usually people don't need shoreline protection. If yes. you do have, you know, if you have the bedrock, it's 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 nature's shoreline protection. So mm-hmm. um, that's fortunate. But uh, yeah, yeah, you're right. Like there's there's also there's the aesthetic part of it too. And I think the the nature based solutions, you know, really do a lot to address that.
0: Mm-hmm. And I was like, are people receptive to these ideas? Like your typical cottage client, are they happy to have this? Like big retaining wall or even the revetment option, is it is it talked about or is it just kind of like, oh, we're worried about erosion, we need to solve this problem? Yeah, I think there can be a bit of a, a tendency to
1: go towards the harder solutions, I think because they're better understood. And um, they might and be worried about sometimes- their property. Yeah, which is entirely fair. Mm -hmm. I think it it, it goes both ways too, though, because I think a lot of engineering practitioners, we, you know, we are a fairly cautious group by nature. And that's, Mm -hmm. you know, what the job requires. But I think because there are clear clearer design standards that relate to those you know to walls and hardened structures right it's it's easier to have certainty with those whereas if you're right taking trying a newer it can be a bit of a leap of faith to mm-hmm. do that. so I think on both sides there's there's work to do but mm-hmm. yeah doing some pilot projects I, I found that to be a good way to test things out in a low risk setting and then ideally you you know, expand on that into other settings and you can be, you know, it's good for the industry then to see that these things can work in, you know, pretty harsh Great Lakes settings. And
0: then, you know, they can be adopted more broadly. And most of the the context behind this season of the podcast as well is, Basically, I'm saying, you know, we live in an area where de- development is inevitable. Like development is going to continue happening, like it's never going to stop. <laughs> Especially, you know, Muskoka is already so developed and it's just going to keep spreading to other areas further north and further east. So, I think what I'm excited to talk about is just like you're saying, looking looking at different options on how to move forward with all of these things that maybe I how do I phrase this? Like the break wall, or not the break walls, these retaining walls, you know, are great for what they do and for the purpose of erosion and breaking up waves. They're like a hundred percent perfect, you know, like they're great. But I know so many people moving forward are starting to think more about like I guess impacts on the environment. And so I don't think any solution will ever be perfect in in any regard. So I think. At least if we're working to be better, then I think that is something that everybody can do and is something that I really believe in. Yeah, I think seeing
1: examples of that change is really important and helpful. So if you know, if you see that there's a shoreline neighbor who has, you know, a naturalized shoreline has, you know, done some some work to you know, to enhance the shoreline with plantings or, you know, tried one of these more natural approaches. I think those are, that's really helpful to give people, yeah, that sort of level of comfort Mm -hmm. um, that it can be done in a way that's safe and, you know, appropriate for their shoreline. So I do think, yeah, I, I am finding that, you know, I'm, I'm certainly trying to suggest these options to clients, but I'm also finding some clients coming to me with their own ideas. So in, on Lake Huron, for example, we had a client who was redeveloping a cottage property and yeah, they, they were choosing to move Back from the shoreline and taking what was a vertical timber shore wall, which is quite common on parts of the Lake Huron shoreline, they, they were in like a dynamic beach sort of bluff area, and uh, instead having kind of a stepped wall that incorporated some like natural native grasses and and other plantings, and so yeah, that things like that are encouraging in in terms of people recognizing the importance of these features like that you know they're they're naturally protective they're important ecologically and uh, and then designing you know and planning accordingly.
0: And do you have a team as part of your company that works to do plantings and are experts on like actual I guess native plant species or do you outsource that and work with another company?
1: No, we do have an in-house landscape architecture firm that's oh. a partner firm Envision Vision Tatham. Yeah, so they're a great resource and that's we've been amazing. working together <laughs> yeah, to develop some specifications because it is a bit like shoreline planting, especially on, say, Georgian Bay and uh-huh. like Huron. Those are quite harsh environments to try to establish planting so yes (laughs) yeah so it's it's not you know it's not like you can just approach a garden or backyard project so Mm -hmm. it's yeah we're working on how best to get those those plants established because once they do get a root system it's it's amazing what they can withstand and that's something that
0: i know it's it's amazing (laughs) yeah
1: through all the work and all of my work in the field during that 2019-2020 period of very high water levels on Georgia Bay and Lake Huron. Mm -hmm. It was really amazing. I would go out to sites and see, you know, widespread erosion with the exception. And this would be where, you know, there were hardened structures, there were revetments and walls and and those were damaged and failed in some cases. And then, you know, there's this scraggly cedar tree that's just clinging to life on the shoreline. And so, you know, it really did teach me a lesson about that, you know, just the potential for shoreline vegetation as a shoreline protection approach. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, yeah they they
0: fared better than a lot of the engineered structures in in some cases it's so it's so interesting and i know most people really question <laughs> like leaving their shoreline completely natural because it doesn't look very tidy it looks really wild and rugged and there's so many different species right on that shoreline that it it can be it can be a little bit like untamed and i think a lot yeah. of people really like To have a more clean look with their landscaping, you know, again, like basically clearing it, clearing it all and having a beach or like the barren rock. And I try to, you know, at least try to persuade people to maybe not clear everything just because, like you said, the root systems are so integrated into that shoreline. They have so many natural filtering qualities and, Again, I'm not an expert. This is just some things I've learned from the biosphere and stuff, but it's it's tough sometimes to persuade people to not touch it. Even my own family cottage, my dad likes to mow the lawn, even though we don't even really have a lawn. It's just kind of wild grass, and he won't give it up because he likes it to be tidy looking for when guests come over. And I think just that whole mentality is... Is funny because you're going to this wild area where, you know, you're, you're wanting to be in nature. And then here we are, like, trimming everything. Yeah. So it's just kind of yeah. funny. It's, but- a,
1: it's a habit for sure. Yeah, no, yeah. I, I completely understand. And I think, yeah, some of it is education in terms of, yeah, making people aware of the many benefits of a natural shoreline. and. Yeah, I think over time people can become accustomed to that. Like the cosmetic pesticide ban is one example where, you know, for so long people would use pesticides on their dandelions and and then all, you know, one day it just wasn't possible to buy them anymore and people have adjusted. They just, you know, you see dandelions and we all survive and so I think yeah, when when sometimes people are required to you know, change by legislation. And sometimes it's certainly we can adjust is is kind of the
0: lesson that I take from that. Mm -hmm. And then I wanted to talk just a little bit about maybe like materials that you would recommend for, let's say, like doc structures and the things. Because I know, again, so much of my information comes from the biosphere, which is one resource. So feel free to speak your opinion because mine is just one side. But you know, they suggest there's so many things like having the dock planks like slightly more open and spaced apart so that more light will filter through to the fish that live below the dock and using like FSC certified wood is always just a good option regardless. But is there anything that you would say like sustainability wise that you consider when you're, when you're choosing materials for projects?
1: Yeah, I think like certainly those are. Those are all good points about both material choice and like material placement to to consider fish habitat and yeah just sort of aquatic use. I think those are important. And then you know, similar to what we spoke about, but just avoiding you know right. concrete and the other mm. less natural materials where you can. Yeah. So, yeah, I think it's 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 a bit of of all of those elements of the conversation of you know, mm-hmm. trying to make the best material choices, the best, yeah, and that, like, in addition to the material, there's the operation of it and and, yeah, trying to expose it to as little risk as we can. so that, mm-hmm. because that that then
0: means that you're more likely to have damage and have to repair and reconstruct. Yes. Yes. And that's something, yeah, Yeah. (laughs) that's like a huge thing from my understanding of what I believe sustainability is too. It's like using quality materials right from the beginning, reducing hazard and, you know, building it properly the first time so that it will last as long as it possibly can. And then you're not having to replace or fix or rebuild or anything. So that's, I think, from an architecture and interior design perspective that's really important to just be using the best quality materials and really good building techniques yeah over over time it's like your life cycle cost will just be so much better than if you were to build it cheaply i don't want to say cheaply but just like not well Mm. (laughs) if that makes sense yeah yeah definitely and then one other thing i wanted to touch upon i don't know did you work on the sunset point eco shoreline Yeah, that was my project. Okay, okay. So we can talk a little bit about that one because that's another nature-based shoreline project that's on your website that I was really intrigued by. So I wonder if you can maybe just talk a little bit about that one. Definitely. Yeah, that
1: was my first nature-based shoreline project. And I was fortunate to have a willing partner in the town of Collingwood. Mm -hmm. They had experienced some pretty serious erosion during that high water period 2019-2020 and required some emergency shoreline repairs to some of their existing shoreline structures. So we helped them with that. And as part of that process, we received comments from the local First Nation, Songhean Ojibwe Nation, and they recommended in future looking to softer shoreline protection options. So it's something that's stayed with me and I wanted to look for opportunities to do that. So I brought the idea to the town and we collaborated with the Collingwood Environment Network, which is a local not-for-profit area that was suitable to try a large woody debris installation. And mm-hmm. so large woody debris is occurs in nature and Generally, just defined as sort of logs or driftwood of a certain size, and they do accumulate in natural coastal environments and and serve as a natural coastal protection. Without you know, they're not intentionally placed or, or anchored or anything. They just find their way to mm-hmm. uh, to settle on you know, cobble beaches and and different areas. So this is something that happens in nature, and so the, the material as intentional shoreline protection. Mm-hmm. So we found a site on at Sunset Point Park, which is a large shoreline park in the town of Collingwood that's quite, you know, very well used and a high, high impact, high priority area for the town. Completed a design. And so it included taking cedar logs that had been, they were actually um, cedar trees that had to be removed to construct a washroom building in the park. Oh cool! Yeah, the timing was perfect. We just happened—they happened to be removing these trees, and we happened to need like cedars, a good wood to use because it's rot resistant. So Mm -hmm. it's good in that kind of aquatic environment where it's you know periodically wet, periodically dry. So we made use of those. The contractor drove them about 100 meters down the shoreline. Oh, my gosh. Um, (laughs) Yeah, which was great. And then, yeah, and then we tried this uh, anchoring approach where it's something called duck anchors. But i had seen it used for other shoreline restoration works that we had done where you use like old um, trees, like coniferous trees, and then anchor them into a a river bank to Mm. provide shoreline protection and habitat. So, So that was the approach. And yeah, so the contractor did the installation work and the anchorage during, you know, Mm -hmm. subject to wave action and, you know, ice, any other shoreline processes. So,
0: and what year was this that this was completed?
1: This was completed in 20. Okay, I'm pretty sure and yeah so it's about 100 meters of shoreline where this was installed and it's performing very well it was you know we intentionally chose a low risk area there's not any you know critical infrastructure that it's protecting mm-hmm. it's just you know it's a pedestrian trail in the park so that was you know the the choice to for everyone to be comfortable that if you know even if it did fail it, it wouldn't be catastrophic and and you know, to me, that's the right setting for a pilot project where yeah you can let things try things out and see what happens. And yeah, this has been really successful. It's it's been something the town has gotten a fair bit of attention for as well. Like we we were successful in getting funding from the Ministry of Environment, Conservation, and Parks for the project. And yeah, so it's it's, it's been a great starting point. And so now. I've been talking to the town about other pilot projects, and we're just currently looking for funding so that we can move on to the next phase and implement some other
0: options. That's awesome. Yeah, I think what a perfect place to try doing this, (laughs) especially working with the First Nations community as well with their perspective too. That's just, that's amazing. And like you said, it's performing pretty well considering it's been I guess two years since it's been completed. Yeah. So yeah, that's, oh, that's been, awesome. That,
1: that was quite exciting. Yeah, it's I was quite fortunate that it came together so nicely and the time. Yeah, the was, trees was so big. willing. Yes, yeah, and and yeah, just all the stars aligned, and it, it ended up being a great project. The other, like on a related note, one of the. My other favorite projects of recent years was actually helping uh, the Saugine Ojibwe Nation to complete a review of their shoreline and their territorial, like traditional territory. They had concerns about the cumulative effects of shoreline hardening and, and hardening mm. their traditional fisheries and just mm-hmm. the aquatic environment. And so I had the opportunity to um, what options there might be to, you know, to encourage the use of nature-based solutions as opposed to traditional shoreline hardening and, yeah, sort of evaluate like the the negative effects associated with shoreline hardening and mm-hmm. kind of look towards next steps for encouraging the adoption
0: of these softer, gentler approaches. And what would you say, I guess, from your perspective, would be the negative effects of of a hardened shoreline?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, so the removal of vegetation being a big one, so you just don't have like where you likely had, a, you know, not all shorelines are vegetated, but whatever the natural shoreline condition was, that gets removed. And so it's no longer serving its intended pur- purpose, either like in terms of coastal process, like shorelines are supposed to be dynamic by nature. They're supposed to erode and deposit sediment elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And so when you interrupt that with a hard structure, it no longer functions in the mm-hmm. way it was intended. And so that that always has some effect on the system. And whether you see it right away or not is, you know, it is a question. But yeah, it's likely often causes erosion in other areas where it might not have normally seen that. Yeah. So so there's that, and then and so you know, the, if you had if you replace a natural, you know, cobble beach or a dune system with a, a wall, again, that, yeah. that interrupts the normal process. You don't. You know, there's there's all sorts of and we don't. You know. Certainly not on the engineering side, and even in the ecology side, I don't think there's a full understanding of all of the interactions in a natural system, and so to—it's so change complicated. That, yeah, yeah, like you can't even anticipate all of the all of the effects. But I know. Yeah, 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 they they are many for sure, and so I think you know whatever can be done to avoid that is mm-hmm. just just smart.
0: Yeah. And don't get me wrong. When someone builds like a cottage or a structure, you know, that still has its effects. (laughs) So I'm not saying, you know, it's just the shoreline. It's definitely, it's everything when you're developing a property. And that's why I'm just looking to speak to people about, you know, how can we maybe just be doing it better and reducing our impact as much as we can? Because like I said, It's it's so inevitable that we're going to keep developing these shorelines like forever. It's just it's going to keep happening. So I'm really grateful for your perspective on all of this, because, again, I'm not an expert. And I think coming from the engineering side of things is a really interesting perspective because I have talked to other people who are maybe more, I guess, like conservation and climate focused that don't have the engineering experience so it's really nice to see both sides or all sides of the equation. Because again, sustainability is like this huge topic, huge question. There's no like right answer because it's so broad. So I really appreciate hearing your perspective on everything. It's it's in very, very great to hear it all. I, I think you answered everything at least in some way of all the things I wanted to talk about, which is so exciting. Is there anything you wanted to ask me? Yeah, well, I did wonder like you have your perspective as
1: like a designer and mm-hmm. yeah, I guess I wondered what you thought in terms of like where are there opportunities to to kind of push the needle on yeah. more natural approaches like both to shoreline
0: protection and otherwise like design, I guess. Like Yeah. No, so Coming from an interior design side of things, I'm also really involved in the architecture, and I actually am planning to go back to school in the fall for architectural technology so that I can really do the whole drawing set, (laughs) kind of like an advanced diploma. Yeah, so I'm excited to do that. But I think for me, like, I've talked to a lot of other architects, a lot of other builders, and they all have slightly different opinions, obviously. But I think the most important thing is just to reduce your square footage, like Mm -hmm. reduce your actual square footage on the property. And like, building vertical is good. But I mean, it's like, it's that and then also reducing your energy use. Mm -hmm. So if you can harness you know, passive heating, heating and cooling versus, you know, like the way that your structure. If you have this luxury, because a lot of people don't have this luxury, but to build something with orientation that makes sense for passive heating and cooling, then you can just, it, it reduces so much of your energy costs over the year. And that's really the amount of energy that is significant over the life cycle of your home. It's like, yes, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of energy going into the build of your home. And if you can also reduce the amount of concrete you're using, that's also great. And if you're building something smaller, you don't need as much concrete and maybe you don't need like an ICF foundation, you can just do like (laughs) piers. And just like, again, these are... (laughs) This all basically revolves around building smaller. <laughs> I think these are just things that we need to talk more about and discuss because I also believe that the clients might not be aware of all of these considerations. But I think any step in that direction is good. Yeah, for sure. I agree mm-hmm. with that. Yeah, that's great. It's, it's interesting to hear what, uh, yeah, what your
1: experience is on that. I mean, I think it's 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 re- realistic to recognize that. You know, the bigger building, the more it, you know, generally the more its demands are in terms of like both the construction, you know, the upfront and then the operating mm-hmm. cost and footprint. So, you know, I think to, to try to avoid that conversation is, is, you know, it's what, us yeah. here in the first place. <laughs> yeah. But, I know. Yeah. I think more people are acknowledging that.
0: It's, For sure. And I yeah. I do really think that more and more people are at least acknowledging it and being like, "Oh, we should consider different practices." So, I think yeah. it's just going to yeah. keep moving in a good direction. And I think inevitably it will have to. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. I think we just keep, you know, the conversations going and be really gentle on each other and just trying to understand all sides of the equation because like, we all have different perspectives and we all have different specialties. And like, I I can't judge your engineering because I don't know much about what you really do day to day. And it's, you know, there's so many reasons why you might engineer something a certain way for the function of it. So for me to say, oh, you shouldn't do that because it has an effect on the environment doesn't really make sense. And same with building, like everything is going to have an impact and it's just like, how can we at least reduce it or slow it down a little bit and just work together in this whole industry to to all understand what each other do?
1: Yeah, yeah, I think that. <laughs> yeah, for sure. No, I think it, in in this like in the sustainability and climate resilience area as much Mm -hmm. as anything it's it has to be collaborative because no no one person has all the answers so
0: and also like if one person's doing something that they consider sustainable like if if not everyone on the project is on the same page with that then you know the architect could build design something that with no regard to it and then When I get there, I'm like, oh, well, I guess I have some say in the material. But if I'm not working with the architect from the very beginning, then my impact is much less. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, it's that whole, you know,
1: from the start kind of philosophy. Yes, that definitely helps.
0: Yeah. Well, I just want to say thank you so much for all of your perspectives. This has been so nice. And I'm really excited to see what you guys keep doing in the future in terms of, yeah, I guess like this specific coastal development topic. (laughs) But yeah, I think you're doing great things. And I just want to say thank you so much for participating and for reaching out to be on the podcast. So
1: that's great. Thank you so much for having me. I, I appreciate the opportunity.
0: Thank you so, so much for listening to this week's episode. I so appreciate every single listener that tunes in, every single reader that reads the blog rewinddesign.ca. The- Best thing you can do for me to support me in this journey is to either follow along on Spotify, Apple Music, or whichever platform you listen to, click that follow button. The second best thing you can do is share this podcast to your friends and family. If anyone you know might be interested, just forward this along to them and tell them to take a take a listen or take a peek at my website. And if you're interested in supporting me further, I also have a Patreon account where you can donate five dollars a month to the podcast and a portion of that will also go to the Georgian Bay Land Trust and that is patreon.com slash rewind design. No pressure to do any of that. I'm just so happy if you're listening to this and if you love cottage country and Georgian Bay and Muskoka as much as I do. So thank you again so much and stay tuned for another episode.